This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. This is the What School Could Be podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. This is the fifth in a series of special episodes that come from the Game Changer and Big Think speaker series in the whatschoolcouldbe.org archives. Keep in mind the audio comes from Zoom calls and YouTube webinars, so expect a couple of bumps and knocks along the way. On the other hand, the conversations you will hear are incredible for their depth and insight into what school could be and what could be school. In this episode, Dr. Sandra Chapman joins hosts Kapono Siadi and Susanna Johnson for an inspiring conversation focused on helping educators of infants through adolescence apply an identity-conscious and developmentally appropriate approach to teaching and caring for children. Dr. Chapman will also share interventions with educators that can interrupt bias and contribute instead to identity-safe environments. Dr. Sandra, aka Chap Chapman, is the founder of Chap Equity, an organization rooted in the belief that through teamwork, we can, number one, learn more about ourselves and others, number two, discuss and discover the foundational research needed to address the needs in a community, number three, create conversations that support individuals where they are and confront barrier issues, and number four, and create actionable steps towards building stronger educational communities. In addition, Dr. Chap is the Deputy Director of Programs and Curriculum at the Perception Institute, where she identifies opportunities to translate the mind, sciences, and other essential concepts into interactive training sessions that build the capacity for clients to transform their organizations. Dr. Chap facilitates workshops on racial identity development, racial microaggressions, implicit bias, identity and or racial anxiety, and stereotype threat in education, healthcare, and with teams in various types of organizations. Embedded within each concept are tools for helping individuals override unconscious phenomena linked to identity and better connect behavior with values. Between 2019 and 2021, Dr. Chap worked as the lead on identity development for the Great First Eight Infant and Toddler Curriculum Development Project, led by Dr. Nell K. Duke at the University of Michigan. Great First Eight is a full-day, project-based curriculum designed to integrate all disciplines prioritizing science and social studies to an unprecedented degree for the infant through primary grades and to support educators in enacting culturally relevant pedagogy. Dr. Chap is the co-author of The Black Girl on the Playground, which she published in 2021. And now, here is What School Could Be's conversation with Dr. Sandra Chapman, aka Dr. Chap. My name is Kapona Siadi. I'm executive director of What School Could Be, and I'm joined by Susanna Johnson. Good morning, Susanna. Hi, Kapona. Good to see you, director of curriculum and coaching with What School Could Be, and so excited about today's conversation. I'm really excited to introduce today uh, our game changer guest, Dr. Sandra Chapman. Dr. Sandra and I go back quite a while. Um, Dr. Chap is founder of Chap Equity, deputy director of programs and curriculum for the Perception Institute. Uh, I'm sure we'll get to talk about perception. If you don't know about perception, today's a great day to learn about an amazing uh, institute with tons of resources. Um, and social identity domain leader for the Great First Eight, an infant through age eight curriculum. Uh, Dr. Chap has, has spent 
over a decade uh, as faculty for uh, diversity, uh, equity, and leadership uh, through the National Association of Independent Schools, and is just one of the great human beings doing diversity, equity, inclusion, and social justice work out there. Uh, Dr. Chap, welcome. Thank you so much. What an honor and a pleasure to see the two of you and to be with you in so many different time zones, I believe. We are. We're all over the world today. Yeah. We're going to talk about diversity. We're going to talk about equity. We're going to talk about inclusion. Uh, I think we'll uh, push into social justice, certainly, as well, and probably into the idea of belonging. But first, tell us about your story. How did you get into this field to become an expert in this field? Because I know you started as, a, a, as an elementary uh, as an elementary and early childhood educator. Absolutely. Um, so my heart is with early childhood educators who are out there. Young people are the best human beings in the entire world. They will tell you like it is and are really sincere in how they show up every single day. So there's a lot of learning that can happen. But let me just back up a little bit. I want to share a little bit about my identity story. Uh, this is a statement I have rehearsed and written about and talked about in so many of the trainings and workshops I do on identity formation. So I identify as a queer Afro-Latina of Puerto Rican Dominican descent. Um, I am a cisgender female, uh, grew up uh, financially poor and culturally rich. I grew up in El Barrio, which is Spanish Harlem in New York City in Manhattan. I am the single parent of two amazing young adults, um, their other mom and I are no longer together, but they are um, my joy and really, really doing amazing work um, that has a lot to do with sort of how they've grown up in the world as well. I am uh, approaching my 53rd year or my 54th year of life uh, with physical disabilities, cognitive uh, challenges and differences. Why is all that relevant? Because every single one of those aspects of my identity are things I am still trying to figure out. Uh, my favorite phrase to use is that identity is a journey. It is not a destination. It, it evolves, it changes, it morphs. I learn new things, I read new things, I meet new people, and I have a different entry point into what I think of myself and how I uh, come to understand myself. And one of the biggest parts of that is meaning-making. I have made meaning of my story and all these words that I've used and each of us has an identity story, and it's the meaning that we make of it, the experiences we've had, and how we come to revisit it that just brings me a lot of, I have a lot of interest in that. How did I get here? Um, I tell a story of Afia. Afia is uh, now a young adult, uh, probably in her 30s. Um, maybe she's not quite in her 30s yet, but a young adult who I met when she was 2.9, 2.11 years old in a classroom of three-year-olds that I was teaching um, about 35 years ago. And Afia, uh, African-American child, a girl uh, raised by African-American family in an African-American Afrocentric community with clear African-American Black uh, values and history and people. And she entered into my classroom in a predominantly white uh, independent school and her parents were worried, and they said that to me when I visited their home in August, which I visited all the kids' homes in, the, in August. They were worried. They said, we don't want her to lose a sense of who she is. Um, they had some comfort in knowing that I also grew up in Harlem, that I also identify as racially Black and ethically Latina, that I also had an origin story that was about growing up in poverty, but also having a lot of love and resistance and resilience. And within three months of school, Afia talked about wanting yellow hair and blue eyes and white skin. And at that first parent-teacher conference around this time of the year, around November, um, they came very concerned and I came prepared to talk as well. What happened? You know, I had a master's degree in early childhood education I had a passion for talking about uh, all kinds of things with young children. I loved every single one of those students. And I did not know, I was not prepared to experience a young child so young, you know, lots of verbal skills, developmental skills, hitting all of those benchmarks and markers. I did not expect that her identity would be one that she would question in such a way. 
And so I went on a journey. Um, I went on a journey to find out what don't I know? <laughs> what didn't I learn? Um, how can I come to better understand how to even address this situation when these kids are so young? And I was really grateful that in the school that I was teaching in, which was a part of a, a graduate program as well, where I got my master's degree, there were people coming to the school that talk about a whole host of things. And I would, even though I had already graduated and I was no longer a student, I would sit in in the auditorium and listen to some of these guest speakers talk about pedagogy and identity and practice and diversity. And that was in the early 1990s. So I had my first exposure to um, Beverly Daniel Tatum, I think pre her first book, Why Are the Black Kids Sitting in the Cafeteria? And she had led the audience in an exercise. And I was like, this is it. I got to talk about identity. And I didn't know how. <laughs> I didn't know what to do with three-year-olds. I didn't know how to bring that into my conversations with three-year-olds. And then by chance, another visitor um, that I came across was Vivian Paley, who wrote phenomenal books about young children and how they enter into the world. And then I came across the third sort of um, anchor for me, right? The, the catalyst for me was the third book by Louise Sturman Sparks and the ABC curriculum that was written in the 80s. And it really helped me to understand what I could potentially do with three-year-olds and four-year-olds and how I can start this conversation to affirm who they are and to address these issues in a developmentally appropriate way. And that's what led me into this work almost 35 years ago. Um, I would say about mm, 12 or 13 years ago, I started working under uh, CHAP Equity, my own sort of company to sort of think about equity, community, resilience, hope, and education. And uh, learned about, and Kapono, you and I were sitting in the same space, the same time, when we had the honor and the pleasure of being trained by uh, Dushaw Hockett and Rachel Gotzel, who uh, started Perception Institute. She's the founder of Perception Institute with two other uh, colleagues, Alexis McGill Johnson and John Powell. And that in information that we received as faculty members of um, the Institute, the Diversity Leadership Institute, really just fueled my brain around so many things that I didn't know as a teacher, as an administrator, as a parent, and as a lover of all children around the world, literally all children. <laughs> so started doing some more work with Rachel under Perception Institute and uh, had the honor really for me of joining them full-time in 2020 when I retired as an independent school educator. So that's that's sort of my journey story in a nutshell. It's an amazing journey story that uh, we've uh, certainly overlapped. Uh, Susanna uh, and I had some overlaps in uh, diversity work in Hawaii that actually came directly out of the work that you and I were doing in D.C. and now around the country with National Association of Independent Schools. So it is really amazing how one person's spark can truly catch fire and spread in a really positive way or, or negative way, but uh, in this case, a really positive way across the world. Yeah. I want to kind of jump into the con context and content of diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice, because uh, it is a very politically charged topic. It's a really complicated topic. I'll tell a quick story, and then I have a question for you out of that story. So I just did a, a, a workshop in Rome on diversity, equity, inclusion, and hiring. Uh, and one of the things that I got some feedback on at the end of that workshop was that the entry point into the work is really important. That an entry point that is both a wide doorway and inviting, as well as purposeful and meaningful, not uh, inviting meaning that, that all people uh, are invited to the work. It's not uh, people of color work. It's not women's work. It's not um, uh, people with disabilities work. Uh, it is everybody's work. And then also purposeful and meaningful meaning, and we're going to get to the actually real work, right? We're not just going to scratch around the surface. Uh, an entry point that is both inviting and meaningful is important. And 
it was actually Rachel Godsell's work and the Shah's work that I uh, I was pushing into specifically around um, stereotype threat and identity anxiety and implicit bias and these kind of like that that what's happening in the brain really resonated with people as an entry point. So you know when you do this work, chap, how do you enter into this work and just share a little bit about what is happening in the brain and how we could use that to 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 meaningfully enter into this work? Yeah. I think that was that, as you said, that was my the missing link. So just to back up a little bit, one of the conversations I love having is about identity development. What is my story? What is the journey that I'm on? And so I was doing that for you know many many years. Um, the other conversation that I bumped up against was uh, Dr. Daryl Wing Sue's work on uh, racial microaggressions. Right, that word's been around from Dr. Chester Pierce since the 1970s, and Dr. Sue brought it back, and I was so intrigued. It's like, I'm, this is the conversation I want to have. So those were my anchors, right? Identity development as a journey that we're on, and what do I need to learn, and who are the scholars who's writing about this? How do I, how do I find my story? And then microaggressions, which are these slight you know, harms that are being delivered. And this conversation that we had around the mind science or the brain science or mind science around implicit bias, identity anxiety, or intergroup anxiety, it's also called, or racial anxiety specifically, and stereotype threat became like the missing link. It became the thing in the middle that I I really needed to make sense of what is happening in schools, I mean, across all kinds of sectors and all kinds of organizations. And so we know that Every single day, we are bombarded with information, information. Some of it is accurate. Some of it is not. Some of it is targeted like, yes, that's true about me. And some of it is like, how could you think that about me? That has nothing to do with who I am. From the time we were really, really young, um, from the time we were infants, we're developing these relationships or these schemas. Information is coming our way. We develop a little story about it. Obviously, when we're infants, those stories disappear as quickly as they enter. But as we mature, right, by the time we're one and two or three years old, those schemas, or I like to call them links of information, get pretty solidified so that by the time we're like four and five years old, Louise Sermon Sparks taught me that we are in a pre-prejudicial stage. What does that mean? It means we're taking in a whole lot of information about what the world says is true. Some of it is not. Some of it is based on stereotypes. Some of it is really missing information or inaccurate. And then some of it might be true. Either way, we're just taking it all in. And without anyone sort of addressing that misinformation or the ones that are based on stereotypes, those get reinforced over time, right? And so when those things get reinforced over time, they develop into ideas we have about groups of people, right? The stories we tell each other about groups of people. And that's where our actions and our behavior is then impacted by what my brain is telling me about these groups. Of people. And that's what implicit bias is. It's an automatic connection of ideas coupled with, you know, behavior. Identity anxiety, uh, it's a phenomena. It's a, it's a phenomena that happens to any person, could happen to any person when there's a worry that the interaction I'm about to have with somebody who has a different identity than I do might lead me, if I have an identity that has opportunities and privileges and um, I have access to things, might lead me to be worried that someone's going to perceive me as biased. Right? So for example, I identify as a cisgender person. I have various different transgender, gender-independent, gender-fluid people that I know, some you know, intimate friendships. And some, you know, just in in passing in terms of in workshops. And as a cisgender person, sometimes I worry, am I going to land on that person and they're going to think I'm transphobic? Am I going to do something that's going to make them think that I'm not egalitarian and open and welcoming? And that's the worry that I might have as a member of this dominant group, cisgender people. So while my identity anxiety or intergroup anxiety is focused on How are you going to see me? How are you going to perceive me? Will you see that I'm fair and equal? That person who's transgender or gender independent may worry, are you going to discriminate against me? Are you going to use the right pronouns? 
are you going to see who I really am or are you going to rely on some stereotype about me? So this phenomena of intergroup anxiety, my anxiety, the anxiety of the person I'm interacting with, can have a real devastating impact on how we show up in authentic relationships, or at least in the goals that we have around authentic relationships. So you think as an educator, new families coming into the school, uh, new students coming in to, the, to your classroom every single year, um, new colleagues that you might work with, right? So there's ample opportunities where there might be that concern of, will I be perceived as biased or will I experience bias? And then the last thing that you mentioned, Kapono, was stereotype threat. So while I am living in this body that I have been given and navigating the world, I know pretty clearly what stereotypes there are about my group. And I bet, Susanna, you know what stereotypes are about your group. And Kapono, you know all the stereotypes about your group. And when we are in environments where we worry that somebody might think that we're living out that stereotype or believe that stereotype to be true about who we are, we suddenly start to get pretty hypervigilant of like, I don't want them to think that's true about me. And that's where we get the threat that someone might see us through the lens of the stereotype. And what that does is that it then has some cognitive interference. My brain is thinking about, don't do the thing that's going to make people think I'm that stereotype. Don't do the thing that's going to make. And if that's what I'm thinking about, I'm not thinking about the answer that I know from the test. I'm not thinking about how to answer the question in the interview. I'm not thinking about how to just greet a new colleague. I'm more worried about this other chatter that's happening in my brain. So these three concepts from the mind science is the entry point that I have come to understand is a really good one to have because we all experience it. It's not about, you know, you have a, an identity that has a lot of opportunities and so you should be doing this work or I'm tired of doing this work because I have all these other identities. And there's some parts of that that's true. It's how can we get to some shared work because we're all navigating different parts of all of this. Did I get your brain turning? <laughs> yeah, my brain's turning, but it also, um, I'm going to take a little leap of faith here and, and be a little bit more vulnerable in, in the journey because I think this conversation requires it. Um, so as Capona mentioned, we um, we came to the work, you know, I came to the work with students, through students, through some diversity work here in Honolulu and Hawaii. And it was really born out of the fact that I was um, the help teacher. And so I was talking about identity in terms of how that all, you know, plays out. And I was, I'm that health teacher who tells it honestly and does a whole lot of like, this is going to be uncomfortable. We're going to talk about it anyway. And we're all going to talk about it just because it's not a part of your reality doesn't mean it's not necessary for you to understand it. It's just truth and knowledge around our health and anatomy and physiology. So I, I was really open about all those things and I think also because I was that teacher who came from a place of humility, I was in the business world and not a lifelong educator. And so I was always saying, I'm not sure, let's figure this out together in terms of that. Those two things combined led students into my classroom saying, hey, we need a safe space. We need to talk about this stuff. You seem to be okay with that. Can we just use your room, sit in your room and start to do that? So those students brought me into the, the work and the conversation in a way that made it comfortable for me because as somebody who identifies with a lot of privileged places, I do come from a lot of privilege and in, in a lot of different of my affinity groups. I felt like them inviting me into the conversation made it a little bit more okay, a little bit more acceptable. This is my roundabout way of coming back to this question of thinking about you in that classroom then with the, the student who says, I wish I had the yellow hair um, after just a short amount of time. And you know, dive, if you can, a little bit more deeply. And it also kind of brings in a question that, that Jennifer Klein um, put into a comment here about the strategies to help adults and children move beyond those stereotypes, threats. Um, how, do we, how do we start to 
to bridge that gap? How do, how do you bridge that gap with that family who already had that worry? It was happening. How do we bridge that gap with all of our families that have this worry? And and to say, it's okay to come into the work. You're going to make mistakes. We all make mistakes. We use the term, hey, guys, right? We just talked about that prior to this. There's so many little tiny things all the time that we do, but how do we jump into it anyway? What are the strategies in those those hard conversation moments to get us to to go ahead and take that leap of faith to say we're human and if we come from this and we're a place of empathy it's going to be okay no matter what that's that's kind of my question yeah no and uh so then i think you actually teed it up really nicely when you talked about what you were willing to open the door for yourself to do because you thought it was important and then the students came and took you up on that offer right so you opened that door and then they said okay we're, we're coming in and we're going to keep coming in and we're going to keep knocking on the door. Um, I think the other the, one of the things that we talk a lot about at, at Perception Institute um, is is leading with dignity. We really want to create a space where everyone belongs, right? Whether it's on teams, at the organization level, um, and certainly in the classroom, we need to make sure that we are leading with our own personal dignity. Right. So, Susanna, you had your own personal dignity around, this is important. Doesn't matter what identity you have, this is a really important thing. I want to lead with that and enter into this conversation. And then I think the other thing that we say a lot in our, in our field and, and in our work is we need to center the dignity of everybody else. And I mean everybody else, right? So that you're creating the conditions where folks feel like they can belong to that space right? They claimed it space. You created the space, but they claimed it. And now it, be, it became a shared space where they felt like they belonged because you led with your dignity, you centered theirs. They then centered your dignity by saying, you're the person we're going to come to to talk to about these things as they entered in with their own. So dignity plus dignity equals belonging. It's uh, a phrase that our, our colleague at Perception Strategies, uh, Jason Craig Harris, has, has introduced to our work as well. But there are also like a whole host of other things that we can do. The first is to breathe, is the breath. And I'm going to, you know, give a shout out to my friend Capono and to Christelle at, at Midpack in Hawaii, who have really taught me, yes, the breath of life. That breath, believe it or not, does any number of things. One, it sort of quells a little bit that worry we have about being seen as a stereotype or living out the stereotype. It also gets us to sort of do a better match between, I don't want to see you as a stereotype or rely on the stereotypes that are the chatter behind my brain. I want to see you as an individual with strengths and opportunities. And yes, I might be able to help you in the classroom because there might be a, a stretch, but I don't see you as a deficit. Right. And so the breath actually allows us to lift up our values, lift up our um, our egalitarian values and then our, our uh, behavior so we can lead with that dignity because of the fast paced world we're living in. We've got students doing any number of things. Believe me, I've, you know, 30 years in New York City independent schools, um, lots of classroom experience any number of things happening. And so it can become a whirlwind. And so when we're in that churn, 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 react, respond, react, respond, um, we miss things because the brain is trying to get to efficiency in the way that we respond. And so when we breathe, we actually can do a better match of what our goals are. So the breath is one really important thing. The other one is, um, and again, your story uh, sort of alluded to this as well, is increasing contact with as diverse you know, humanity, human experiences as we can. When we increase our contact with diverse people, we can counter the stereotypes. We have access to other stories in our brain when we increase the number of experiences that we're having. But I want to say that one of the things that can get in the way of increasing contact is this intergroup anxiety that I named, right? If I'm worried about how I'm going to show up with uh, you know, I use the example of the transgender community or gender independent community. If I'm worried about how I'm going to show up and I'm leading with that worry, well, one of the things I'm going to do is avoid those communities. I'm going to avoid conversations. I'm going to avoid pronouns or names or any reference. And then my brain is also then really impaired because I'm really working hard to show up in my values. But instead, I do the mispronoun. 
I use a different name, and I make the very mistake, so I'm trying really hard not to do. So increasing our contact gives me many opportunities, right? And I, I agree with you that we will make mistakes. And when we are in loving, you know, committed, authentic relationships across lines of difference, there can be some room for the mistakes. And when those mistakes happen, we also have to reset, right? We have to lead with, oof, I think I just used the wrong pronouns. Really sorry. I'm going to work on that. That's not your job. That's my job. I'm going to work on that. So we were talking about, <laughs> you know, and get right back to the conversation at hand. So we practice reset, which is another sort of acronym we can share later. Um, there are a couple of other uh, strategies that I'd love to talk about, but maybe there's another question out there first. Uh, Josh uh, in Hawaii asked a question that I think I think connects to this, and it's, pr it's probably uh, I don't know. I, I might have an I might have thoughts on it too, but I'd like to hear your thoughts first. Josh says, given that the U.S. population is becoming less transient and moving less, uh, for example, boomers are getting old and staying put. He says, uh, is this a reason for hope? for more belonging and um, a sense of place. I'll, I'll tell you some of my thoughts on it. I think yes, and I also think that there was something you were saying about that intergroup contact that maybe is something we also need to keep in, keep in mind about people staying in place more like people did in the you know early 1900s where there wasn't a lot of movement either. What are your thoughts on that, Chap? So one of the things I'm fascinated by in the research is when researchers are trying to figure out some solutions to problems like intergroup contact uh, or increasing the contact, they think a little bit about, well, what's possible? And I think the question that was just asked is like, hey, if folks are staying close to home and in their communities and not moving around a lot, how are they supposed to increase contact? And the beautiful answer is there's direct ways, right? My relationship with the two of you, my relationships when I travel, my relationships with the diverse human beings that I know. There's also indirect. It's what movies am I exposing myself to? What literature am I reading? Who's writing the literature that I'm exposing myself to? What podcast can I listen to? Like this one. <laughs> what podcast can I listen to that might expose me to a different point of view? a different perspective. So those indirect ways of increasing our awareness are as valuable when you don't have the actual people in your home in your own community. I once had a participant say to me, I don't think I can ever change this, right? I live in this community, I'm raising my children, I grew up here, I work in this community, um, I don't do a whole lot of traveling, I don't have the resources for traveling, so this is it. I'm in a predominantly white community and that's it. And so then we started to dig into like, well, what are you reading? You know, uh, who are you listening to? Um, how do you get inspired by uh, the movies or, you know, the things that are out there in the world that don't replicate your lived experience? And he named a whole host of things. And he realized, oh, <laughs> I could do that. It's like, that's right. Dig in, dig in there, because that's also where you're going to get some, some really interesting experiences. Now, the direct can't beat that. There's always some richness in that as well. Um, but in the absence of that, right, there are lots of other things. It's like what we do in the classroom, the whole windows, mirrors, and sliding glass doors. You know, we, we try to create curriculum where kids have access to mirrors. My story, that's my story, that's my story. And also a window. Oh, that's not my story. And then how can we create that glass, sliding glass door so kids can go back and forth between the two? That cross-pollination of, of perspectives, I think that is really, it's, it's, it's good. It's hard. What you talked about before in terms of the racial and stereotype anxiety that comes along with it does make it like I kind of steal myself up to get ready to jump into what may be an uncomfortable situation. Um, if Mel just dropped in about the technology, you know, maybe gets us a little bit closer to some of these connections and makes it a little bit less of a of fear because we're still, you know, we have some mild protection that comes around this. But I want to shift if we can and, and poke a little bit into this. The small actionable steps are starting to come a little bit clear. But where does where does the policy work come in? Um, and I, you know, like, I think there's some space for some systemic 
options, some work that can be done, especially when you're in a school environment or an educational environment of like, we're just going to do this. It's just going to be part of who we are and what we do. How do those conversations get started in the face of such challenge with all of this, the crossover and the the trying to increase our own um, perspectives? So um, different organizations, when they're looking at uh, how to create change, think about the various different levels. And at Perception Institute, we use the gears, right? So you've got the individual gear. I am a human being and I have been informed by so many different things and I have a mindset and an ideology about people and even myself, right? So I'm a person and I work in an organization or I work on a team or work in a classroom, things like that. There's also the interpersonal gear. So I'm going to show up in this conversation with the two of you and I'm going to show up in a way that hopefully will match my thoughts and my values around um, how I want to create belonging for everyone and how I want to lead with uh, my values around inclusion and belonging. Um, How I show up every single day for every single student and their families and their community members and my peers. So at the interpersonal level, various things that I can do to shift the gear towards more inclusion. And then that's the, the next gear is the institutional, right? It's a little larger, right? It's hard for me as an individual to think, how do I change this institution? How do I change those policies? How do I change the practices in our school community, right? Um, I don't have the power to do that. I was literally in a conversation yesterday with a team of of teachers, some administrators, but like second level administrators. And they were like, I don't have the power to create systemic change in this school community. And it was another colleague. He said, but we have some power because we have voice, right? So it's like, it was great when I could just step back and let that sort of live there, right? Like collective voice, very powerful thing. Um, And then there's the systemic, right? So we've got the, the system called education and there's so many different types of education. There's the individual schools that anybody might be a part of. There are the teams and the relationships and the students at the interpersonal level. And then there's the individual. And each of the gears sort of impact one another. So if I want to create systemic change in the field of education, I've got to think about how am I shifting my personal mindsets towards equity and dignity and belonging and practicing the strategies to lower my my biases and not relying on stereotypes. Because every single day I'm going to interact with people and that gear can be shifted toward the positive. And then every day those interactions impact what the institution feels like, right? Which can sort of lead to the institution saying, no, this is who we want to be. This is how we want to behave. These are the policies we're going to revisit, right? And then that collective voice can lead to some real changes. So that would be my, you know, I I don't impact policies in that way, but I know I impact a lot of individuals who will have an impact on those policies. I appreciate that. And and I I like the... um the metaphor of the gears. I've, I think that a lot of us think about a lot of this work in terms of more concentric circles, like the personal and then the interpersonal and then the institutional and then the systemic. Because I think a lot of people lately um, in the past few years have really gotten good at putting a poster up on the wall to say, this is our policy, but that's not living the culture. And so for me, I think there's this question about is there a way, if I'm, a, if I'm a classroom teacher who listened to this conversation, is there a way for me to really increase that cultural vibe? And you, you started to get there with the we. Yeah. There is so much power in the we, right? Like it's, it's not just me trying to figure it out. I'm trying to figure it out with Capona. I'm trying to figure it out with you, I'm trying to figure it out with everybody else on, on the squad. And so there's power in the we. But what are the other ways that I can just shift that culture in my own space while doing my own personal journey? So I happen to be um, right behind me is one of my favorite posters. It's from the um, uh, Board of Ed in Topeka, Kansas, right? A policy change that was made to desegregate schools. And that policy did not change the hearts and minds of individuals, right? But it took several individuals to say, heck no, these kids are coming to our school, right? It took that one teacher that said, I'll teach you. Right. And that one family that said, we'll, we'll send our kid to your school. 
right? So it's small, right? Like it's just like so powerful and so meaningful. So yes, this lovely Brown versus Board of Education, Topeka, Kansas, 1954, um, is my reminder that it's the small that lead to the big systemic changes. So you talk about the power of we, right? Um, there's also the power in not yet, right? So growth mindset. If we could use the power of not yet, the power of, of moving away from the deficit model, moving away from seeing children's growth and skills and acquisition of skills as fixed, but instead see it as growth, growth mindset, Carol Dweck's work and many other scholars, we could see that there's a transition that, that kids are going to get to. We know that the growth and that journey that children are on is going to happen not in the 10 months that we have them, right? Um, this little Afia is an, an amazing, mature adult. And, you know, we found each other on Facebook again. And so I get to see what she's doing in her life. But that was not the three-year-old that I had in my classroom, right? So there were lots of things that transpired. So growth mindset is a really important um, part of how we engage with our students how we engage with colleagues, but also how we can give ourselves some grace, right? Like that interaction did not go so well. Well, I'm going to do it better the next time around, right? So having also growth mindset for ourselves. One of the reasons why I started with increasing contact with diverse people is because we can do two really important things. One is the stereotype replacement. If I have, you know, different people uh, who belong to a particular identity, but they're so different from one another that I can get out of what Chimamanda Adichie says, the single story, right? I can get out of that single story narrative of this experience. Oh, people like that are like this. It's like, nope, that's actually not true, right? Identity is way more complex, it's multi-layered, it's multifaceted. And so we want to lead with the complexity. Don't, don't box anybody into an identity or to a story about that identity, Let's let people go onto their own paths and find their identity story and get to an achieved identity. So replacing the stereotypes can happen when we actually have lots of people that we're getting into in relationships with. And then I have one of my favorite strategies. Um, it's called scripts, behavioral scripts or social scripts. Scripts are really helpful when we're not sure what the rules of engagement are, right? So they're helpful around intergroup anxiety. They're helpful around uh, implicit bias even. It's the thing that you practice saying before, a, for example, a high stakes moment, right? So you're meeting those new families for parent-teacher conferences or family conferences. You know, this time of year, November is usually when these moments are happening. And you've got to tell a family both the highs and the lows, right? The, the challenges of, of how the child is experiencing the schools or the stretches, I like to use the word stretches, as well as the successes. But you're a little worried about what they might say about you or uh, how they might perceive what you're trying to say, or you're just worried about how you're going to deliver the information. Well, if you lead with this kind of a script, I tell teachers this one all the time. Thanks for coming in for your conference. I'm looking forward to talking to you about your child's entry into school, uh, what their stretches are, what we're working on together, ways that we can support each other to help this kid get to all the places that they're wanting to get to because they're going to get there, right? And so part of the way I'm going to talk through this conference is talk about this, this, and this. And then please ask, answer, you know, ask any questions that you'd like to ask along the way. And we'll certainly make sure to leave room at the end for anything that's popping up. So that's a social script. I've just written an intro that I will use for every family, not just the ones I'm most worried about, not just for the triggers, but for every family. So when that family comes in, they don't have to worry so much about um, what identity you are, how you show up, what I think you know or don't know, because you've just told me you do this for everybody. You just told me that you're going to lead with stretches that my kids should have in school, right? And some successes. And you just told me that they're bound for greatness. Well, I believe that too. So let's get to work, you know, as a parent partnership, parent school partnership. So these moments where you write out what is most important to you helps to sort of navigate your own anxiety about 
How am I going to enter this conversation? I am thinking about something I heard that was uber simple from a admissions conference. And it, 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 it's, it's overly simplified, but basically this admissions conference had shared with admissions directors that there's this formula, I know your kid, I like your kid, I have a plan for your kid. It's overly simplified, right? But from a parent's point of view, that you know that a kid is known, right? I know your kid. So when we engage in a conversation with, uh, with parents, that there's specifics about the child, right? So I'm thinking about that triad of prompts now with the lens that you just shared uh, and identity-wise, I know your kid. Personally, I know your kid. Then I like your kid. I think that's someone that's a little oversimplified. I, I actually think I want the best for your kid might be a more technical way uh, that we could say that, a more, a more educationally professional way to say that. But that feeling, right? Parents want that feeling of I like your kid. And then I have a plan for your kid. And here's how we're going to move forward. And it just was kind of reminding me a little bit about that, that script that you were saying that if we have those, if we have those scripts at our disposal, this really difficult work is doable. Yeah. And I think, it, it, let, let me go back to the, the, the conference that I was leading in Rome. The second part of that feedback of, you know, this work, this uh, identity work, uh, this implicit bias work, the identity anxiety work, the stereotype threat work is a good place to start because I can see myself in that work. The second thing that was said is, I don't know how to talk about this. That session was filled with only white males and one white female and who were in charge of hiring for the schools that they worked at or for hiring uh, agencies. And they wanted to make a difference in this field. And the, the, the second big, the biggest thing they said is, I, I want to do this. I'm here. I showed up, but I don't know how. I don't know the words. And if I say the wrong words, then... Right. Yeah, then so. I'm leading with a microaggression or I've just triggered this moment for this person. You know, one of the, uh, one of the studies that we use at Perception Institute, um, I believe it's 2010. So while it's old, it's still pretty relevant. And we consider research old when it's 10 years old, but um, it's very, very relevant. And it's really around what are the goals that people have in their first, in those first interactions, meeting people for the very first time. So literally you are, you know, a, a person of color and you've just been hired in a predominantly white school. You're, you're at the admissions office, you know, or whatever, you know, you're in an interview process. So these high stakes and new entry moments. Well, one of the things that the researchers found is that if we could understand that sometimes people have different goals in those first interactions. Now, there's no monolith of any identity, but researchers have to be limited in some ways. They have to have a target audience and they have to have their uh, all their studies and their clarity about who they're studying and why. So, you know, while I just named that identity is complex, don't put anybody in a box, I'm going to share a study where people were put in a box, <laughs> um, but just for the purpose of getting to the information. What they found is that, generally speaking, one of the goals that white people have in their interactions for the first time is to be liked, right? It's a goal of like, I want people to feel, know that I'm open and, and accepting and egalitarian and that I want people to like me. And so then they also asked the follow-up question to see like, what kinds of behavior do you engage in if your goal is to be liked? Well, the behavior they engaged in was friendly, warm, smiles, you know, to elicit I'm likable. For the black and brown people in the community, black and, and, and Latinx members of this research study, there was not, and this was in a predominantly white school, so I think that's relevant, there was not the presumption of confidence or competence. And so one of the things that they led with as a goal was to be respected. Do you respect me? Am I respectable? Will you lead with that in our interaction? And so when, again, looking at, well, what are the behaviors to demonstrate that you are wanting to be respected, they were more serious, right? A little more reserved, a little more serious to match with that goal. So with those two, just those two identities right there, you've got, you know, a, a super friendly white person with a very reserved, serious person of color and they're going to be reading each other's body language and really being off. Like, why are they being so friendly at this interview? Don't they respect me? Or why aren't they smiling at this interview? Don't they know that we're a friendly group of people? 
And so that's sort of an example, again, you know, one example of what can happen when we're caught in that moment where we don't know what to say. So having a set of protocols, leading with a, a little script of, of what the goals are for the interview, even letting the candidate know, regardless, again, this is what's really important about any of these interventions or strategies is you don't use them just for particular identity groups. You use them for everyone. Because if it matters for the person, it will have an impact. If it doesn't matter, it won't take anything away from them. So leading with a script of, during this interview, we're going to ask you a couple of questions. We really want to get to know you. Um, and we would love to hear um, you know, some questions that you might have for us. And that's basically what we're going to do during this interview. And so let us know along the way you know, what questions you might have. Um, but we're going to get started with our questions, right? All that does is it just says, here's the prototype <laughs> question, getting to know you, and you get to ask us questions, which is similar to your the admissions uh, sort of three phases. So in the midst of the interview, you still might not know what to do, but you've just set up the scenario where you're going to lead with these three main goals. You're going to have some set questions that you're going to ask so of everybody, so you're not kind of going off the cuff and you're going to open it up to make sure that you've left room for the candidate to ask questions as well. I have a, a question for the both of you because it's, I came into a conversation, you, you were both having a conversation about rising up and challenge. And so if you could talk a little bit about that and, and help me to understand what does that, what does that mean to you? What does that look like? Rising through challenge. I think, I think the, the phrasing of the, of that is something I'm having a hard time with because I want to see rising through success rising through triumph, rising, rising, <laughs> period, end of sentence, right? Because there are all these other uh, goals, aspirations, desires, and positive outcomes that come at the end of what might be a challenging moment. So if my goal is really good stuff, really great relationships, authentic meaningful relationships is my ultimate goal, then I can see any challenge I might be um, up against as just something I'm going to get through on the road to this other bigger thing, right? And so I have to have that bigger rise or success or uh, resilience and hope at the end of the journey, because then the challenge is worth it. Kapona, what would you say? Kapona, what would I say? I would say that this work is a lot of challenge, and I like that idea of the rise a lot. Maybe it's a little bit of a bummer, but I think that you know when when I've when I've when I've so when I've started to do this work with organizations that haven't really done the work yet, or have started the work and have gotten one part of it done, it often feels like you're pulling back a rug, and there's all of that dust underneath. And then you start doing the work and the dust like kicks up and then you start choking on it and sneezing. And you, the, you know, your instant response is put the rug back. Everything's more messy than it was before. It was fine. You before. flooded on. Yeah. <laughs> you lifted I, up the rug. <laughs> lifted up the rug, put the rug back. And so that framing of like, there needs to be a rise, right? And the rise is uphill right? It's up and, and you have to defy gravity for a little bit. It takes energy. Thinking about, you know, the Artemis launch just the other day, yesterday, and, and all of that energy that it takes to do something meteoric, astronomical, amazing, right? And it, it takes that energy. So I, I like the rephrasing of my kind of bummer metaphor with the rise. Uh, <laughs> that's good. So let me take off of that and, and push into, you know, there's so many educators Listening to this now in areas where if they were to enter into this work, they might actually be in danger, right? Their jobs would be in danger. And I think we would be remiss if we didn't touch on the conversation of 
what do I do, Chab? I'm, you know, if I'm in a, a state, a county, a school that I, I feel like my job, maybe even my livelihood, my, my, my personhood is in danger for doing this work. Advice. Yeah. I think a piece of equity work, diversity equity work is connected to good pedagogy. Good pedagogy, good practice is incorporating identity work. But much like with any other form of teaching, whether it's teaching the math class or teaching the, you know, teaching students how to read, like you probably have gone through a series of trainings yourself to be able to tee that up, right? To feel grounded and clear about what you're doing, why you're doing it and how you're doing it. And DEI, DEISJ, diversity, equity, inclusion, social justice work requires us to practice our tools, sharpen our tools, rebuild the toolbox that we're going to use so that we have at the ready what we need when we need it. So I would be remiss to say, you know, if I didn't say that equity work should not be off the cuff, it should be well thought out with a framework that is grounding with uh, strategies and ideas. And then I think that gets to what you're saying too, which is one of the last things, which is support. And when you don't have that support or you're not sure if you have that support, it makes it really hard to engage in this work. Much like it's really hard to, you know, do that, that extracurricular math project that is not in the textbook if you're not going to get support to do that math project, you know. Um, but yet there are lots of teachers who are still doing the math project. Um, who are still finding ways to like, well, let me bring it in this way and let me find a way to, you know, get to the textbook material, but give it a little bit of a, like a little, a different entry point. So I think one of the things that I would suggest is still breathe, increase your contact, but also lead with that dignity of, I have dignity for myself and how I think about this work and what I think is important and why I'm engaging with children to begin with. Lead with the dignity that every child in your class has an identity story, an identity journey that's yet to be discovered, or they might have a lot of things that they're already bringing in. That they belong to a, you know, ancestral group, a historical group, an identity group, a family group that is rich with opportunities for dialogue. And choose a children's book. Choose even if you teach middle school and high school, choose a children's book to bring in this idea that like, hey, I want to read this book to you about this kid and see where we go with this. Where are you seeing connections between this kid's journey and your journey? What would you do differently? You being you, how would you solve the problem in this chapter book or you know, uh, point in history? How would you solve this problem differently? Inquiry, right? questions, and various different entry points. You might not be able to teach, you know, some of the lessons from my favorite go-to place, Learning for Justice, the anti-bias framework, and all the materials on there, or many of the other, you know, social justice-oriented websites or books that are, you know, textbooks that are created for diversity work and affirmation work. You might not be able to do that, right? But you might have one entry point that still connects your values to, like, every person in my classroom deserves to be heard and seen and validated for their lived experience. How can I just bring those lived experiences into the classroom? That would be my attempt. That's amazing. It's uh, it's a good attempt. This is tough work. The hour flew by, my brain is spinning. I get to engage in this work often. And even with that, my brain is spinning around this. So on that, I'll first start by thanking Susanna Johnson, my co-host. Thanks Susanna for being here. And a humongous thank you to Dr. Sandra Chapman. Same here, Susanna and Capono. Much love. It's, you know, life-changing to, to have these conversations, but especially to learn from you. Thank you. Take care, everyone. These special episodes are edited by Kim Diltz and Evan Kurahara. Our theme music comes from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist, Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. 
You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. Please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Follow the show on Twitter at WSCB Podcast. Until the next episode, ahui ho and take good care.